Welcome to Werewolf the Podcast, a retrospective podcast about Werewolf the Apocalypse. Imagine. Imagine Atlantic City. Imagine HLGCon. The boardwalk. The beach. The hotels. The casinos. Imagine an old hotel, renovated, restored, open to the public in a way it never was before. Now imagine a series of quirky, intense, and interesting event rooms. Imagine the coolest bar you've ever wanted to host a LARP in. And that's the showboat. HLGCon is happening October 12th through the 14th of 2018 in the Showboat Hotel and Resort in Atlantic City. We'll have LARP, tabletop, board games, and more. We've struck a deal with several LARP studios to run a blockbuster LARP, Pandemonium, that'll be unlike any other event in 2018. Find us on the web at hlgcon.com. Come join us. Imagine it, and we'll make it a reality. G'day, my friends. Welcome to another episode of Werewolf the Podcast. Uh, this episode, I am going to be your host. I am uh, Michael Heath, and we are going to be talking about Rage Across Australia. Now, my cousin, Josh, uh, had asked me to come on and uh, do a review of this book. And honestly, this is, um, this is a book that I was planning on panning like really truly throwing under the bus and uh and ignoring that it ever existed but after rereading it and and talking a little bit about the book and, and tossing it around i realize it's not quite as bad as i remembered it being now it's not um it's not perfect but i think it uh, it does a couple of things well that surprisingly uh won me over again uh taking another gander at it so this book is effectively a region book for Australia. So it looks at Australia itself and it looks at Tasmania, um, giving a, a general idea of, of what um, the continent uh, looks like and what sort of things are going on. And it frames this around a story of, of colonization. And I think all in all, it does a, a decent job of that in a way that um, that actually tells kind of an interesting story. It's not perfect by any stretch, and uh, I probably say that a, a lot through this episode, but it's not as bad, like I said, as I remembered it being either. So for a book uh, of its age, I actually think it takes a, a pretty straightforward look at, at things that happened in Australia's history and says, this is shit, this was terrible, and um, it then looks at deconstructing those elements and understanding how they impact um, modern Australians and uh, people uh, of Aboriginal descent and of European descent that uh, that live in Australia. So I think um, I think it's interesting. It's an interesting book for tackling that topic in a way that is fairly adult and fairly well um, well attacked at least. But we'll do this by the numbers. Um, this was 
printed in 1994. Uh, the main authors are Richard Watts, Mark Rudgley, and Ben Chessel. And I don't know that I remember seeing either of these uh, gentlemen having written for White Wolf before, so I would imagine that they've got a connection, or at least somewhat of a connection to Australia. Um, I'm hoping, anyway, but I can't say that for sure. Um, the one thing that you can see, though, is that elements of the book are definitely written from an American perspective on uh, Australia. And that's fine. You know, there's nothing explicitly bad about that um, that point of view, but I think it's good to note that um, that there are a few things that feel like an outsider looking in on Australia and trying to, to explain what it means to be Australian and what it means for the history uh, of Australia within the world of darkness. And absolutely, it's coming at Australia from a world of darkness perspective, so everything's a little more bad than it would be otherwise. But um, anyway, this was developed by Brill Bridges, which, as, we've, uh, as Josh has said before, all of the books um, in this era were developed by Bill in one form or another. It was edited by Robert Hatch, art direction by Richard Thomas. Thanks, Rich. Um, the arts by Joshua Gable Timbrook, Scar, uh, Des Waterman, and Tonya Walden. Cover arts by Richard Kane Ferguson. There are maps in here by Brian J. Bloom. And uh, Kathleen Ryan did the typesetting and layout. So. There's uh, kind of you know, the folks that are involved in putting this book together. And it starts off with um, a, a story, like most of the books in the World of Darkness do, and specifically this one's about the death of the Bonyep. And um, the Bonyep, as a, a group, let's just tackle them up front, because I think that's going to frame a lot of what else we talk about. Uh, the Bonyep are thylacines. They are Tasmanian tigers that were also Garu and they're connected to uh, the Kuri or the uh, Aboriginal Australians and that's good to note in that they are presented as regular Garu uh, except that they're connected to these uh, these Tasmanian tigers and there's some elements to deconstruct about that but all in all in the end um, that's kind of what you've got, where you've got it. Uh, that's the basis for the the rest of this story. Is this idea that the Bonyip were um, the native Garu to Australia, and like the rest of Australians' wildlife, they were marsupial or a little bit different than the Garu from uh, the rest of the world. Now, oddly enough, and maybe we'll talk about this more later on, the um, the dingo, which is uh, a dog, uh, technically a wolf, uh, another type of canis um, that is able to breed with wolves and dogs, um, less recent to the Australian uh, continent, but um, still potentially able to interbreed with the garu. And so you have red talons in the um, in Australia that breed with them. You have other Garu that breed with them as well. I find that odd. That's like a that's a strange connection, really, to connect those two, um, connect them all together like that. To say, okay, the regular Garu or the European Garu and the, the you know Garu from North America can breed with the dingo, but the Australian Garu were 
connected to the thylacines and the bunyip and all of that just seems like a, a, a strange way of framing it not a bad way of framing it just odd in general but um, the book is larger than some of the other books that uh, that have been reviewed on this podcast so far it's about 150 950 pages and it's broken down into different chapters and appendix and those chapters are pretty in-depth you know you get a really in-depth um, analysis of the history of Australia and some of the themes and let's talk about the introduction first um, I could probably go all around this book uh, reviewing it kind of talking about it and, and deconstructing it in one way or the other so the theme of this book uh, is strangers in a strange land and I'd say that's not how most Australians view themselves but at least it's somewhat fair that this idea of connection to the land is a little still a little difficult potentially if you are a spiritual being that uh, that's been in the land less than 100 years at this point or 150 so years 200 years at most all right fair enough right um however it also plays a little bit on the otherness of things and by othering things separating yourself from them and I worry that it does that a bit too much with Akuri and their relationship to Europeans and to the Garu of course since that's the way it's being framed through this book so you've got to be careful with that and it's like okay yes strangers in a strange land is a potential element but you don't want to go too far deep into that and then and really break yourself on the rocks of um, of othering while at the same time trying to create um, a sense of fish out of water or trying to understand how people fit within this framework. The mood that they talk about is guilt and atonement. And I'll, I'll say that, I think that's fair. You know, from a mood standpoint, the, uh, the Australian Garu are trying to make amends for what they did with the Bunyip and I think that's potentially interesting uh, when you get into the NPCs and what they're doing I think that's um, that's interesting it's something you can dig into and gain a lot from really um, and I think gothic punk Australia is significantly different than Australia itself but not drastically different you know it's not um, it's it's about as different as the world of darkness in America is to America you know it's darker there are things that are bad in the country that are frustrating in the country that um, that are still impacting everything within the world of darkness so it's there and it's it's stronger in some ways um, you get this history in chapter one and really it goes from all the way back to when the Kuri themselves the uh, Aboriginal Australians may or may not have moved to um, to the island. Now, I want to point out that some indigenous peoples have kind of this issue with um, oh, uh, framing everything around, oh, when did you arrive? And that's, that's fair. It's not really the way that that they themselves view it. They view it as, you know, that they've been there, that Australia is their land, uh, and it doesn't matter if they did come from somewhere else at some point or if they've just always been there and they've always been part of the dream time um, and we'll talk about the dream time a little bit more in a few minutes but 
all in all that um, the view from most Aboriginal Australians is we're here um, that's the end of it and I, I'd rather that when we're writing role-playing games that we take that view that we kind of accept that yeah you know some people just are there and maybe we don't need to always fall back on these discussions about when people came from because that speaks to the colonial focus of you know when did you arrive oh well you're an arriver just like we are you're an immigrant just like we are and it disconnects something about people that have been in a place for 50,000 plus years and we don't need to know like when did you arrive I know when I you know when I when my people arrived in this country and that's fine but for people that are indigenous to a place why do we need to go in that that's a broad segue away from you know kind of what we're talking about here but let's go into where it starts talking about um the Garu themselves and it starts with a war of rage and how the Bunyip were not on board with the war of rage they wanted to get out and so they found a way to get to uh, this faraway land Australia to to do that because they were peaceful now of course this is sort of framed badly or framed difficultly because it's centered around this idea that um, Aboriginal people the, particularly the, the Koori themselves are peaceful people, they don't have war, all these things. Of course they, they are people that make weapons and have made weapons historically uh, so they did at times fight and they're human beings so uh, they have anger and all of that, the emotions that every person has and yet there's this sense of oh they're spiritual calm people and they're lovely but that's a gross exaggeration and it gets played into a bit much with the way the Bunyip are written here too and that the uh, the Bunyip are these Geru that yes they do the things that Geru do but they're overall peaceful they don't want to fight they're, they're effectively pacifists and fine but not really like probably not really accurate if this was something that real people do especially if they were Geru with rage why would they be super peaceful it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense um, but in the end you get the history of European invasion and European interactions with Aboriginal people and it wasn't good it was blatantly genocide on a lot of levels and that we need to accept that and understand that and I think this history actually does a really decent job of being flat open with that and not hiding from it and not saying oh no like it wasn't always bad but no it was pretty well shit you know European settlers into Australia were all about breaking people down and getting rid of the, the Aboriginal Australians as much as they could and the Koori did resist you know and there's kind of a Temping down of those stories about their resistance from white supremacy and, um, you know, um, the um, there's a word I'm looking for and I'll get to it in a second. Oh, the squatters, squatters being Australians that had money and claimed broad, you know, territories of Australia. And uh, there's a reference to the squatocracy here, 
Uh, it's funny because this is actually a term that's used, squatocracy, to talk about conglomerates of squatters that would make plans and decide where they would take over territory and things like that. I think that's interesting. It's kind of a, a humorous, um, maybe not intentionally humorous, but it has a bit of humor to it um, connecting back in. Anyway, point being that the history section here um, it doesn't shy away from the... Um, the troubles with the between Irish immigrants to Australia. It doesn't um, shy away from issues with um, transportation and the different reasons that a lot of Australians um, ultimately uh, were, were moved to the country. But not every Australian um, is descended directly from people that were sent there as transportation. It's a bit overblown as a thing, as a as a, um, a element of identity that people focus in on. Um, there's a joke, you know, that uh, you can still see the change on our arms and legs, you know, um, when people reference the um, the um, prisoner element of Australian history. It's not the only reason that people went to Australia, particularly some of the Irish who went there um, to uh, for the gold, different gold um, strikes that were found and different other natural resources and trying to find life outside of, uh, of Ireland, especially during the troubles, um, well, not the troubles, but during the um, the famine and everything like that, and even then during the troubles. Um, so there's things there to, to pull out um, and really like focus in on. Um, that was a long rant <laughs> to talk about the fact that the history section here is, is based in real history and um, provides really detailed information for people that don't know anything about Australian history as it pertains to real life and the way the Geru uh, interacted with humans that were doing the sorts of things that they were doing in the country. And you have within this um, this history and how it dovetails to the sense that Geru uh, felt that they had the right to Australia and that the uh, Bunyip were not doing a good job at, at being Geru and protecting country which doesn't make a lot of sense you know um and then you see this rise of this um sense of shame and guilt within this history and uh, the creation of the jindabine council which is effectively uh, a geru council that oversees everything that happens in the country and um and from there tries is trying uh, on its own in some ways to fix what's going on I wouldn't say they're perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but the Jindabyne Council, as they're presented, is a very nuanced group of NPCs that are trying to do what they can with Australia and trying to do what they can to protect the country from the gross depredation to the worm that, in the end, they actually caused, or the Geru themselves caused, um, from the World of Darkness perspective. So, the geography is the second chapter of this book and it's really effectively done you've got um, information on everything from the great barrier reef to the major cities in australia the different states and the i, I would say a lot of this is is accurate and and well written and actually gives you a decent sense of the scope of the country um I don't think most Americans know that Australia is much larger than you might assume it is, and that 
really the major cities along the coast are not close to one another. It takes a long period of time to get between Melbourne and Sydney. And uh, if you're not quite capable of, of framing that and framing the distance, you might just say, oh yeah, right, you're from Melbourne, you're from Sydney, it's all the same, right? The distinct cultural differences between the two cities, um, even more between places like Perth and Sydney or um, anywhere in Queensland and down south, um, you've got really large differences between um, between those spaces. So keep that in mind as you're reading a lot of this, that this is a lot of space. There are a lot of different Geru here. There are a lot of protectorates and um, a lot of seps that are presented, different cairns. And you really can do a lot with these. And even if you don't want to run uh, a chronicle in Australia itself, you can take a lot of this information and just pull it wholesale out and slap it wherever you want to and say, hey, this is basically what I'm going with. I'm just making it more local and giving you maybe a different name and calling it good. And that's totally fine. I think the good thing with a book like this is it provides so many options that you can do that and you can dig into it and go, sweet, I'm going to take this, I'm going to take that, and I'm going to do what I want with it and I'm going to enjoy it, which is really what you should be doing with any of these books um, to help you run the game that you want to run. And there are hundreds of different of different story hooks and ideas and concepts here, so you really you can dig into those and enjoy it. There's a discussion about the flora and fauna uh, within the country. That way, you know, you can talk about kangaroos and koalas and all that junk. Um, and I, I say that kind of offhandedly. Um, the everybody knows that the animals in Australia are odd for the rest of the world, and most of them are deadly. Most of them are trying to kill humanity. It seems like. That said. Um, there's a little bit of an outsider's obsession with Australians, Australia's different animals and uh, all that sort of thing. One of the worst things you can do to an Australian is come up to them and be like, oh, I saw a koala once. Uh, great. You know, that's um, not really the right thing to do. Um, though every Australian at one point or another has been kangarooed uh, and they get to hear all about the exploits that other people have had with kangaroos and uh, and, and things like that. That's fine. Anyway, <laughs> off on a tangent, eh? Um, so, thylacines and the dingoes. There's a section in here that talks about that and talks about how um, the Garou are breeding with dingoes and then the thylacines and the focus on that. And for those that don't know, the thylacine as an animal, the... Um, the um, tiger, the Tasmanian tiger, is dead. It's extinct. It's probably been extinct for a lot longer than um, than it would be potentially able to like genetically manipulate and bring it back, but there are stories about doing that, um, not just in here, but um, in general there are scientific studies looking at, well, could we um, bring these animals back and what would that mean? And that is one of the core stories behind uh, rage across Australia is the idea of what would happen if Pentex or the Technocracy or the Geru were able to bring back the Bunyip and what that would mean. And that background, I think, is really useful um, to framing a lot of what else happens within um, this book. Is this That's 
one of the major ideas, one of the major concepts of saying, okay, these Geru are no longer, what, what would happen if they were to be brought back? What sort of impact would that have on the Geru nation? Would they accept them again? Or would they just say, oh no, they're weaver-tainted or worm-tainted, etc., etc.? Hello, folks. Have you ever wished you could have an easy way to find gameplay videos and podcasts, or just media in general that deals with your favorite white wolf role-playing games? Or have you ever wished you could find a forum to share gameplay that you have recorded, one which wouldn't be drowned out by random posts and discussion so that your media could get the attention you want? Well, we have the answer for you in a Facebook group we run called White Wolf RPGs Gameplay and Media. The group is specifically ran with the sole intent of it being a one-stop shop for people to view or share media involving the games we all love. We take thorough steps to ensure the page does not become cluttered and is easy to traverse. We are currently over 1,000 members strong, and we are continuing to rapidly grow with new media being shared every day. Stop on by! We hope to see you there. Chapter 3 is about the NPCs in, uh, in Rage of Australia, and it's huge. It's a huge section of the book. And these are amazing NPCs, really well written, really interesting um, concepts here presented. Now, keep in mind, some of this is written from a 1994 perspective, and uh, there is a trans character here that uh, is not presented in a particularly acceptable sort of way. Um, that said, in general, for a book from White Wolf in 1994, there's a lot of attempts at, at showing diversity in a way that's not negative, in a way that's hopefully positive, and that's a lot of what you see throughout here. Um, you get a lot of talk about the Jindabyne Council and what that means for uh, the Geru within Australia. That's really like, they kind of hammer that home as a point. And the Jindabyne Council uh, have their own particular pack who is connected to the Rainbow Serpent, which was the totem of the Bonyep. And that pack is effectively like the silver pack for Australia. And this is where you get into that kind of, okay, well, you have the silver pack, so that's probably not just for the nation, that's probably for North America that the Silver Pack exists for. And in Australia's case, you have the, um, oh, my brain's not coming up with a name, um, but you have the pack, whatever the pack's name is, uh, that the Gingerbine Council has put in place to kind of be their um, eyes and ears. And there's a story at the end of this book where players can be that pack. and. Uh, I think that's interesting. That it's, it's an interesting story if you don't want to dive into it. But if I were to say, like, there's a specific NPC that I would want you to take a look at and maybe use in here, it's Kanonos, who's um, known as Armor the Goddess. And Kanonos is a Metis of the Children of Gaia. And he uh, specifically is one of the Geru trying to use DNA extraction and... Um, and uh, cloning to bring back the Bonyep. And I love this NPC. I've I've used him in a couple of games and even pulled him, you know, out, out of an Australian context at times. 
I think he's really well written. I think he's really interesting. And actually, you know, there are large portions of the NPCs in here that I think are better than what you might see in a couple of the other books that have been reviewed on this podcast. Um, the, these NPCs are, all have really interesting plot hooks, connections, and relationships with one another. There's a, a Geta Fenris in here, Carla Grimson, who is trying to do good things, but is also a bit of an um, anti-immigration activist. And But I think what's interesting is that instead of diving into the headfirst and saying, oh yeah, she's a neo-Nazi, the writers at the time said, no, she doesn't like them. Instead, she takes this view of immigration from an ecological standpoint and what that means for humanity. And yes, she has a lot of views that are reprehensible. But how do we deconstruct that and then get it to what can we understand about her and then what can we do to maybe break her away from that mentality from the elements that we can understand and I think that's helpful that's helpful for us to, to deconstruct and understand so really I could probably go on and on oh geez I, I just scrolled through another amazing NPC Tifa Titanium who was a red talon that got taken by Iteration X and brought to Arachthonia. If you're not a mage fan, I'm sorry, but they are amazing. It X is probably one of the best uh, conventions in the technocracy. And Tether Titanium is just a cool NPC in the Glasswalkers that um, in the Glasswalkers that is um, has that that story about being taken away by Technomancers into Idex home homeworld, basically, and comes back, and what that means for him. Uh, I think that's just a neat concept. That's one I would recommend diving into. I think the multiculturalism of the Glasswalkers in Australia is really important to note, and I think it's something that's useful to, to dig into. Australia is a place that's very diverse and at times also very like frustrated with its diversity you know uh, immigration was controlled for a really long time and there's still some disrespect by European Australians toward people from Asia and yet we have a large Asian population we have uh, a large Polynesian population in Australia so it's possible to recognize that there's hypocrisy in a place there's hypocrisy in a people, but it's not necessarily the end-all and be-all or the end of the question. That Yes, these things exist. Yes, we can fight against them. Yes, we can talk about them and deconstruct them as uh, an entire sort of mentality. And there are effectively every single uh, tribe has representatives in Australia, even the Wendigo. And the Wendigo are not native to Australia at all. And it's very clear about that in this book. There are Native American people that do come to Australia that have a bit of comradeship with the um, with the Koori and their, you know, frustrations with colonialism, and they often not often, but there are connections made between uh, those different groups, and it's helpful to kind of see a couple of those connections here and saying, okay, yeah, sure, these people might have. Um, might have come to Australia for these particular reasons. And this Wendigo in particular is Joseph Blows with the Wind. Uh, he is 
there's some issues with his write-up, but I think what's what's kind of interesting, and I can see this in some ways, is he becomes a surfer, and he's a, like his thing is surfing off the coast, and he's really in in Australia to kind of disconnect himself from his responsibilities back home, and then he runs into the Rokea, and that creates an interesting uh, hook. That if you wanted to, you could uh, bring Joseph into a game, and that gives you something to to latch on to, like a way to bring the rest of the, the story forward. And um, the... Right, I think I've just kind of rambled on enough there. Um, there is also a mummy uh, from Africa in this book. I, I don't know you know where the thought process with that was but it's there the um awesome references to mage and mage are just uh, fairly recently kind of broken out as a game so i think they wanted to, to dig in and and make connections to that where they where they could um there are information on the black spiral dancers and the worm in this uh the sample uh, pack of black spiral dancers is really interesting the information on pentax here is really useful if you want to bring pentax in and have them be a little bit more important locally and um you of course have the squatocracy don't know why that tickles me but every time i read it it, it makes me want to laugh a little bit um and they're terrible so it's really not a good thing to laugh about but um if you wanted to connect the squatocracy and with your stories you could do that you have um, elements talking about the Aboriginal Protection Board, and they're based on a, a real problematic element of Australian history um, related to um, taking Aboriginal children away from their parents and, and deconstructing those families. You have the same issues in Canada and the United States as well, and it's a problem and it's a ridiculous facet of colonialism. But if you want to connect that and face it and deconstruct it within your games you've given enough information to do that here and then you've got details on some of the vampire elements so I, I think that was done a little bit from a crossover perspective but also so you could um, create somewhat you know realistic linkages if you uh, wanted to in your vampire with with vampires in your werewolf game there's also uh, significant elements about the the dream time which in this is the uh the umbral reflection of the australian outback and it has connections to kuri myth uh kuri traditions i should say and the dream time i think is m misunderstood by a lot of folks it's not necessarily a separation of the universe from reality as we understand it and i think the problem is is that there's no effective dualism in the kuri uh, mentality toward the universe that the dream time and, and what we might call the real world exist simultaneously in the same space it's um it's it's one of those concepts that does exist in other cultures but not very well understood by anyone i think um, from looking at this from a modern perspective and particularly from a werewolf perspective it works as two separate locations but that's there's problematic elements there uh, to say the least and you're provided with all the different spirit elements and you, know, you have koala if you really want to have a pack that's koala 
I don't know why you'd have anyone following Koala, but why would you have anyone following Squirrel? Um, so there's all kinds of different spirits uh, that you can utilize in your game uh, as pack totems and things like that. And really, I think because this recording has gone on a lot longer than I than you know these particular episodes usually do, I want to say this: there's enough here to run a really good Australia game to do something different with it. But also, if you're running a game in Australia today, I would try to remove a little bit of the colonialism, the sense of, oh, fish are out of water, as the, as the main elements. It's not really what I would suggest diving deep into. But the story that's provided here uh, is a decent one, and if you wanted to do that, you could certainly play this out and see how it goes and then decide what to do uh, from there so this has been another episode of werewolf the podcast this book we've been reviewing is rage across australia and if you have any questions concerns or anything like that get back with us and uh, we'd be happy to talk them over